Sunday and like make the whole message about that. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. Let's do that. And that's what we're going to kind of do today. And, and the reason we're going to do that is I want to kind of set the background and the future and all of the things that are associated with communion. Um, and because it's very rich, it's very full of meaning. And so we're going to dedicate our service today to covering that. And of course, we're going to be taking communion later as well. And so we're going to do that. But before we do, we're going to ask for the Lord's help. <clears throat> Father, we bless you, uh, O God, for the songs that we can sing that remind us of who you are and what you have done. And Lord, you are good. And God, as we face a new year, we're just so thankful that we're doing that with you. And Lord, as there are so many troubles around us, Lord, and difficult experiences and uh, conflict in the world, Lord, we know that, Lord, you are in control and that we can trust in you. And so, Father, we pray that you would uh, lead us forward this new year. And that you would truly bless us and be with us. God, we need you. And Lord, as we look to your word today, uh, Father, we pray that you would te- uh, teach us and speak to us, O oh God. And Lord, that the Lord Jesus will be lifted very high in our midst, O oh God, as we consider what communion is all about. And so, Father, we look to you now for the blessing. We ask your blessing on the Sunday school as well. And God, we just give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to be looking at a number of passages, but... Um, to begin with, we'll, we'll kind of look at the institution of the Lord, what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. And of course, uh, in the Gospels, we read of the accounts of, of how this came to be and, and what its purpose was. And so we're going to begin today in Luke chapter 22 and verse 7. And here we're going to find out about the institution of this uh, observance that we have in the church called communion. Luke chapter 22 and verse 7. It says, then the day of unleavened bread came when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. That's very, very important to this story. And we're going to come back to that thought in our next, uh, but I just want to point that out to you that the, the Lord's Supper was instituted by no coincidence on the Passover celebration. <clears throat> we're going to come back to that. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it, they asked him. Listen, he said to them, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him into the house he enters. Tell the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished room upstairs. Make the preparations there. So they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. There's another key phrase. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it amongst yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so here we have the institution of the Lord's Supper, uh, or communion, as we often call it now. Uh, And this is where it first began, with the Lord and his disciples eating the Passover meal in the upper room. You know, we have those famous paintings, you know, of the Lord reclining at the table with his apostles. That's when this occurred, right? And it's very simply, he took a, 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 a bread and he had them eat that. 
and he said, this is given for you. This represents my body. Do it in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup. And that's why we do that today. And you know, the church has debated for centuries and millennia about all kinds of minutia of detail about, you know, how communion should be observed and what the emblem should be and shouldn't be. And on and on it goes. Nonetheless, when the Lord instituted it, it was part of the Passover meal. It was bread and it was wine in a cup and it represented the Lord's body and his blood. And of course, we know, right, of course, that that's why Jesus came. That's why we have Christmas was for the purpose of the cross. And this is Jesus just before his passion on the cross is instituting the Lord's Supper communion as a memorial for himself. So when we do it, right, one of the the primary reasons we do it is to remember him, is to remember that the Savior came, to remember that the Savior went to the cross, to remember that he died for me, that he died for you. That the forgiveness of sins is through him and not through us, right? It's this constant memorial and it's good for us to be reminded. And it's a constant reminder that salvation is of the Lord and not of man. And so we do it as a memorial to God. But, you know, there was a lot of things in this passage that we touched on. He talked about a Passover festival. We're going to go there next, right? He talked about fulfillment in the kingdom of God. We're going to talk about that as well. And, you know, it's a very important remembrance that the church has to remember the Lord. The Bible doesn't tell us how often to do it, but there's no question that in the at, at the first century, in the, in the first decade or two after the Lord uh, ascended, that they did it every week. Uh, we know that. Uh, they went from house to house. They didn't have church buildings. And they would remember the Lord through the breaking of bread every week. But... It was not as we do it today in the sense of, you know, some some little bread over there on the table and some cup. It was actually integrated as part of the regular fellowship meal of the church. And we'll talk more about that when we get into some of the warnings, okay? So Jesus is already having dinner. He's having the Passover supper. And as a part of that, he then institutes what we call communion, the Lord's Supper, as a memorial to remember him. And so when we take it, and when we take it a little bit today, we remember We remember the Lord's body, that he came in the flesh, that he was born at Christmas, that he had a body. He was fully God, fully man, and that that body he gave for you and for me. And we remember that his blood was shed on the cross uh, for the remission of our sins. And so we do it as a memorial. And here we have the institution of the Lord's Supper. Well, the second thing that the Lord's Supper uh, that I want to cover is that it's it's a fulfillment of the Passover. And you may, I don't know how familiar you are with the Passover celebration, but you know the Jewish people have been celebrating that faithfully for thousands of years, since the time that they came out of Egypt, a long time ago. And to this day, Passover is still celebrated. I actually attended one in Toronto back in the late 80s. My wife and I uh, attended a a Passover Seder in Toronto uh, with uh, Jews for Jesus And so we kind of got to see firsthand uh, how they celebrate it in the modern times. But I want to go back to Exodus because it's very important for us to make this connection with the Passover. It's not a coincidence that the Lord was crucified on the Passover weekend or that his supper was instituted at the same time. So we're going to do a bunch of reading today. That can get a bit laborious, I know, but we we need to do this to to get our understanding. Okay, so Exodus 12 verse 1. Exodus 12, verse 1, and verse 3. Sorry, Exodus 12, verse 3. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, they must each select an animal of the flock 
according to their father's families, one animal per family. If the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each will eat. You must have an unblemished animal. A year old male, you may take it from either the sheep or the goats. Unblemished means that the animal is perfect in every way. No defects whatsoever. Anybody in here ever raised cattle? I used to. And yeah, so, you know, if you're into cattle and you, if you've ever been to like the Royal Winter Agricultural Fairs or whatever, they're always judging, you know, different classes of animals based on how perfect they are. You know, like if it's a Holstein cow, like how perfectly straight the back is. That's one of the features, right? It has to be like just level straight, right? So a perfect animal. This is important to our understanding today. Verse 6, you're to keep it until the 14th day of the month, and then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat them. They are to eat the meat that night. They should eat it roasted over the fire along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roasted over fire, its head as well as its legs and inner organs. You must not leave any of it until morning. Any part of it left until morning you must burn. Here is how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You're to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. They were to take that blood and put it on the doorpost of the house. And when the Lord would send the angel of death, when he saw that, he would pass over them. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day is to be a memorial for you, and you must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You're to celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statute. And so you may recall the story, right? The the children of Israel, they're 400 years in slavery in Egypt. And the Lord sends Moses in to bring them out, right? And as Moses is dialoguing over several days and weeks with Pharaoh, uh, you know, uh, it's not going so well. And Pharaoh refuses to let them go. And so God's going to bring a final judgment on the land of Egypt that will certainly make Pharaoh change his mind. He's going to kill all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both of people and animals. But he tells the, the Jewish people, you're to, to sacrifice a perfect lamb, put the door, blood over your doorpost, and when I see that blood, I will pass over you. And I hope you're seeing the imagery here and making the connection to Christ, right? We have an unblemished lamb, and Jesus is the perfect sacrifice of God. Without sin, without defect, without any fault. He did no sin. He knew no sin. Nobody could ever convince him of any. He was the perfect man, you see. He was the unblemished. When John the Baptist first saw him coming to the Jordan, what was the first thing out of his mouth? Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away... The sin of the world. He is God's lamb. Right? You might recall another story when Abraham was commanded by God to take his only son up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him to the Lord, right? Just as he was about to bring the knife down. I always wonder what was going through the boy's mind. The Lord said, don't do it. God himself will provide a ram. And there caught in the thickets was God's provision for that sacrifice, right? 
So Jesus comes as the Lamb of God. He is perfect. He is without blemish. And He is the one that takes away the sin of the world. You see, the connection from Passover to the Lord's Supper is very, very strong. And in fact, the Lord's Supper is a complete fulfillment of the Passover in every way. Jesus was crucified on that weekend, (laughs) on the Passover sacrifice. Remember the first passage? Now, when the Passover lamb must be sacrificed, that's when Jesus had his Lord's Supper. And he was that Passover lamb. The nation didn't understand that at the time. It was God's provision for their sin, you see. To pay the debt that they couldn't because Jesus spilled his blood. You see, when we receive Christ by faith, that blood is applied to us as it were on the doorpost of our heart. And God passes over judgment. There is no judgment for the one who is in Christ. And Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God. And when God sees the blood, He passes over. And it's a memorial for us throughout our generations. And so for the church today, we have this perpetual memorial, a reminder of who Jesus is, of what He has done. He is God's Lamb. It's a fulfillment of the Passover. Excuse me. And we could spend a lot more time on that, but for the sake of time, we're going to move on. It also foreshadows the Messianic banquet. And Jesus said, I will not drink of this cup or celebrate this again until the kingdom of God comes. And the Bible has prophecies concerning the Messianic rule of Christ, which is yet future. He's coming again, you see, and he's going to rule in righteousness on this earth. And the kingdom of God will be seen and realized. And there's prophecies concerning that. And there's a lot of prophecy concerning a messianic banquet, a feast. One that we uh, that I particularly like. And I think when I read verse 6, you'll understand. I'm in Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, he's talking about Jerusalem. The Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat. A feast with aged wine. Prime cuts of choice meat. Fine vintage wine. Now that's a meal I'm going to sign up for. I can only imagine what the the supper of God will be like. (laughs) Um, But God's going to prepare a feast, you see. And He's going to have a banquet for His people. And all those who know the Lord will be at that table together with the Lord, you see. We have table fellowship with the Lord our God. And so that's in Isaiah 25. And Jesus also would speak of, we don't have time to go through all the Old Testament references to the Messianic banquet. But Jesus would talk about this in his parables in Matthew 22. He talked about the kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. And he goes into a lengthy discussion here about how this king, you know, this king had prepared this amazing banquet and he it was all ready, you know, he had everything set, it was all beautiful, and he wants people to come, and so he sends his servants out, go invite people to come to this amazing banquet that I've prepared, and people started to make excuses, you know, oh, you know, I'm too busy, or I got a field to go look at, or you know, please have me excused. And eventually the king, you know, had to go into the highways and the byways and find all kinds of people that he didn't even know to come to this feast. And Jesus used that to compare to um, salvation. Uh, but there's a wedding banquet, you see. And that's that messianic banquet. Uh, the bride of Christ, which is the church, right, will be invited to that banquet with the Lord Jesus. And it's going to be quite a banquet. I can only imagine what it will be like. So the, the, the Passover speaks of the foreshadows, the Lord's Supper, which is communion, which also is a fulfillment of 
the messianic banquet which is to come. It looks forward to that. And you know, we only do this Lord's Supper and communion until the Lord comes. And when he comes, it'll be fulfilled and we won't do that anymore. We don't need to do that anymore. We'll be in his presence forevermore. And so it's only until he comes. So we have the Passover, we have a messianic banquet and prophecy, we have the Lord's Supper and communion, but we also have some uh, warnings in the scripture that I want to take a, a look at this morning as well, because you know, the Lord's Supper was being abused by the early church, and so Paul had to kind of deal with this, and so I want to talk about a couple of abuses and warnings that we have from the scripture, and then we're going to finish up with some secondary symbols. But in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul was dealing with a church that actually had many problems, <laughs> Um, but one of them was that they were abusing the Lord's Supper. And so we need to understand that message today. So now I'm flipping over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says, Now in giving this instruction, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better but for the worse. That's quite a charge against the church that they're coming together for the worse. So something serious is going on here in their abuse of the Lord's Supper. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Verse 20, when you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. So what's going on here? Well, in that early church... The believers would gather on the first day of the week, typically in the evening, because in the first century, Sunday was not a statutory holiday in the Roman Empire, so it was a work day, and after the work day, the Christians would gather in homes, and they would always have a fellowship meal together every week. By the way, that's why we do uh, potluck when we do communion, because that's what the early church did, and uh, we'll tie that in in a few moments, if I don't forget the meal. But that's what they were doing. They were meeting in homes, and oftentimes it would be wealthier people in the church who had the larger homes that could have 30 or 40 people over, and they would meet from house to house like that. They would have this great big meal. But what was happening was, is that the rich were kind of getting the preferred seating and having their own little party, while the poorer members of the church were kind of in the courtyard, and they couldn't afford to bring food, or they couldn't afford to bring good food. And so you had the wealthy Christians in that room, eating and drinking and making merry and having a grand old time to excess. They were getting drunk, in fact. Uh, and then you had the poorer Christians segregated to the courtyard who weren't getting hardly anything to eat. And what Paul is saying is when you have that kind of division in the church, when you have that kind of party spirit, you're in fact not celebrating the Lord's Supper at all, you see, because Christ brings everyone together in one body in the church. And we're all one in Christ, one in the Lord. There's no high and mighty and men of lower degree when it comes to the the body. We're all one in Christ. Men, women, young, old, poor, rich, it doesn't matter. And so the, the, the offense that the Corinthians were doing, which we have to guard against in our day, is this kind of segregationism which creeps in and we start putting people away and, you know, creating our divisions within our church that are based on these kind of class distinctions and not recognizing the body of Christ and what Jesus has done. It's, it's a great offense to God when we do that, when we have that kind of spirit amongst us. And that's what they were doing. <clears throat> and so Paul is addressing that. Verse 22, don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. <clears throat> and we must never despise a brother and sister in Christ based on 
social status, financial status, like anything. You know, we just can't do that because that's not what Jesus has done. That's not what he has accomplished. He has brought together all in Christ. And that's a beautiful thing. And so the church must reflect the body of Christ. And, you know, we know the sad history of the church as the church has struggled with that through the centuries and we wrestle with those things. And I was just sharing with some uh, folks recently. Um, I'll be at an evangelism conference in Louisiana in a few weeks. And um, last year when I was there, you know, in the deep south, they've had their segregation issues, right? You have black churches, you have white churches. And, you know, we were explaining to some of the young people there uh, a few nights ago when JC and Christina were over, because, you know, sometimes uh, people don't understand, even in Canada, how, you know, when you're growing up, you have certain groups of people you're supposed to hate, right? So, you know, pardon me, I'll just share this with you, but where I grew up, and I was supposed to hate Catholics and French people, because that's, you know, we were Protestants and English, and we st- we don't have nothing to do with those people over there, and we stay away from them. So for us, it wasn't blacks, it was Catholics and French, where I grew up, right? But in the Deep South, it was black and white, and last year when I was at this evangelism conference, and, and of course... Of course, those things are all wrong. I love Catholic people and I love French people. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when I was there last year at the conference, they said, um, we need to have churches that look like heaven. And I'm like, yes, churches that look like heaven. In other words, heaven will not be oh, all the white people over there and all the black people over there, all the rich over there and all the poor over there. No, it's one body in Christ, you see. And we have to have churches that look like that. And the goal is to have integration, not segregation. And the Corinthians were doing just that. They were segregating based on foolish things and despising God's body. Verse 23, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, it's a memorial. And every time we do it, we're saying to the world and to ourselves, Jesus died. It's kind of a tough thing, right? But it's a necessary thing. It's such a, an important thing. It's so vital. We testify that Jesus actually was put to death. But that was God's plan for our salvation. And we do it in remembrance of him until he comes. So then, verse 27, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, if your Bible says whoever eats and drinks unworthily, that's not a great translation, Okay unworthy manner that's the whole context of what paul is talking about here right and sometimes we get hung up on that and they say well mark you know i'm a christian but i'm unworthy well actually that's not true but you might take it in an unworthy manner and how would you do that well you would do what the corinthians did you would despise your brothers and sisters and put barriers in there and treat them like second class citizens that's how you would take it in an unworthy manner But if we take it together and we view everybody as equals and we love everyone equally, then we're not taking an unworthy manner. That's the whole context of what Paul is talking about. Listen, if you, if you know the Lord, then you're worthy to take it. (laughs) It's, it's a memorial feast for the Lord Jesus. Now there's some warnings. We'll talk about it. Hang on. 
So he says this in verse 28, let a person examine himself in this way and let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And he goes on to talk about the fact that there was sickness in this church related to this sin before God. Not discerning the body. What is the body? It is all who have put their faith and trust in Jesus as equals. Equally loved by God. And we can do no less. And when we, when we cast aside our brothers and sisters or we judge those over there as unworthy of us, then we are not discerning God's body, which has brought them all together in one. And God doesn't like that at all. He hates that kind of division and that judgmental attitude that does not recognize the ones whom he has received. And Paul goes into Romans, if you read Romans 12, 13, 14, you'll talk, it'll talk there about how we are to receive all whom Christ has received, whether we agree with them or not. If they're the Lord's children, they're the Lord's children. And we need to be so careful to guard against spiritual pride. Okay? So, Paul gives us this abuse, which is based on this division within the body, and a warning that we be, need to be careful, because God won't he will not, he will not, he will, he frowns upon that. And we need to guard against that. That's the whole context of what Paul's addressing in 1 Corinthians 11. There's another warning I want to talk about. And that's kind of a, an allusion found in Matthew chapter 5. And uh, we are really running out of time, but we're almost done. We're not going to rush the supper today. We'll, we'll go over time a little bit. Matthew 5 verse 21. <clears throat> Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. So if you're offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. So what, what the Lord is talking about here is that when we're, we're making an offering to God, you know, we're praising Him, we're remember, you know, whatever, and I think there's a good, good reference here perhaps to communion as well, that if we realize in the midst of that, that our brother has something against me and that the implication is that it's legitimate. That I need to first go make that right. So what, let me give you an example of that, okay? Let's say, and this is of course totally fictitious. <laughs> Last week I went to Randall's house and because I was angry with him, I burned down his work shed. I lit the sucker on fire and watched it burn. He's out there crying and I'm going, <laughs> and then I come back to church and I'm up here and I'm praising God and I'm going to take communion. And while I'm about to take communion, I remember that Randall has something against me, and it's legitimate. I just burned down his barn for no good reason because I despised him. I ought not to do that. I ought to go to him first and be reconciled. Randall, I'm sorry for burning down your barn. I shouldn't have done that. I was wrong. And then I can offer my sacrifice to God. And so when we come to the Lord's Supper, you know, there may be cases. And it, again, it, it's it, the, the assumption here is that it's a legitimate gripe. Sometimes people have a gripe against me that's not legitimate. That's not what the scriptures are talking about, right? Nor is it talking about me having offense with other people. It's talking about somebody has a legitimate offense against me because I've legitimately wronged someone else. 
then I need to make that right before I carry on with worship to God. Because, you know, we can't really worship God and say, Lord, I love you, but I hate that guy over there and I'm going to get him. That doesn't fly with God. It doesn't work that way. That's not how God operates. And so that's another warning for us this morning. But, you know, if we're Christians, full of faults, full of weaknesses, (laughs) we stumble and fall. You don't, we don't come to communion and say, Lord, I'm worthy to take it because I, I never committed any sin this week. Oh, no. Oh, no. We come broken as we are in faith, believing, and we remember the Lord through communion. All right. One other symbol, and then we're going to get to it. And that's in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16. There's some symbol symbology going on here. The, the first and the primary reason we do so is a memorial for the Lord Jesus himself to remember his body, his blood that was given for you and for me. But in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, Paul gives us a secondary symbol. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share in that one bread. And this goes right back to the abuse that was happening in verse in chapter 11. When Jesus instituted that feast, he didn't have like a whole bunch of little pieces of bread on a plate like we do today. And the fact that we do is fine. He would have had a piece of bread, one. And he would have broke a piece off, gave it to a guy, and another one would have broke it off and passed it around. There would have been one loaf which symbolizes the unity of the body. There's only one body in the Lord. And when we take communion... We have that image as well that we're one in Christ, that there's only one body. It's not divided. And even though we have our man-made divisions in the world today amongst the church, you know, sadly, there's only one body in God's eyes. He doesn't say, oh, well, there's the Baptists and there's the Pentecostals and there's, you know, no. To him, there's only one body in Christ. And so, you know, I'm not at all suggesting that we, you know, throw the the baby out with the bathwater and ignore, you know, deep uh, doctrinal error. But we need to be careful on how we cause divisions in the body of Christ. There's only one loaf. There's only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Savior, one body in Christ. And we, every time we take communion, we testify that, yes, we are part of that one body in Christ. Now notice, when it was the Passover, there was a meal. When it was the Lord's Supper, there was a meal. When the early church celebrated communion, there was a meal. In the future of God's kingdom, there's going to be an amazing meal. I can't imagine. You see, the, the, the fellowship of God is around this table idea, table fellowship. And when Jesus came into the world, right, what's he doing? He's found eating with sinners around a table. Table fellowship with the living God. That's what it's about, you see. That's why, you know, when we have our meals together, it's not just, okay, we can have a little church picnic and that's cool. No, there's a lot of meaning and some, some symbolism in it. It speaks of that kingdom. It speaks of that one body. It speaks of the fellowship that we have one with another and with God. And that's why I encourage you and have encouraged you and will continue to encourage you to use your tables to reach people. Invite them over for dinner. There's something special about breaking bread together with people. It changes everything. When you can sit down and have a meal together, it's a whole lot harder to cast stones at one another. (laughs) kind of changes that relationship. So there's a meal involved. And communion speaks to that future kingdom of God that is yet to come. So that's a whole.